One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back, fellow time travellers. Always it's great to have you with me as we continue our journey through space and time. Just before we get started on this week's episode, I want to tell you a little bit about my Patreon site, which helps to support the making of this podcast. Every week I film a new vodcast which is exclusive to Patreon, and it's made here at my home in Stirling. The films are full of history and how it connects and interacts with what's happening in the modern world today. Uh, For folks who are new to the site, there's a whole archive of eclectic videos, you lucky people, to catch up on. Uh, And from time to time we run competitions. And I'm sure in the future we'll find other diverting things to do as well. To join me, simply go to patreon.com and search for me by name. That's Neil Oliver. I would love to have your support and I would love to have your company as a fellow time traveller. All right. Now it's time for the next podcast episode as we set off to one of the most magical places that I have ever seen in the whole world. It's this week's love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. It made you think, I better enjoy this while I'm here because the tide's coming in. And if that isn't a metaphor for life and death, I don't know what is. In this episode, we step through crystal clear waters, across bright white sands, to a set of three tiny spellbinding islands. 17th century smugglers made them a secret hideaway. One island has a customs house and a royal square. Another was home to a self-styled king who swapped gifts with Queen Victoria. A place apart where it's possible to glimpse the elusive shimmer of magic itself. Enchanted islands that will steal your heart and they will always have a part of mine. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the last episode, the Cold War sent a chill around the world as the fear of nuclear war took hold. Where are we this week? Oh, Paul, we're, we're, we're in the presence of the antidote to all of that. We're in the presence of the antidote to all fear. We're on our way to a place where I just can't imagine the dread of an impending nuclear Armageddon making an impact. It's a location that feels set apart from the struggles the fears and the strife of the modern world. It's set apart from everywhere and everything and every when. 
somewhere that has managed to stay hidden away and yet to remain close to nature and the elements at the same time. When I dream of escaping the push and pull of the 21st century, this is where I go in my head at least. The perfect, perfect getaway. Les Ecrehu. This is number 93, I believe, Paul. It is indeed. In terms of episodes, which I find absolutely staggering because, you know, for those who are not aware, we started doing this uh, early on in lockdown, really for our, for our, to, to keep us both sane, wasn't it? <laughs> it was something. It was something constructive and creative to focus on. Yeah. Um, and that we've now done 92, <laughs> and here we are doing the 93rd. I find absolutely. I just can't. I can't quite take it, and it's a lot of talk. Um, but I think it's worth stating that this place, which is Les Ecrehu, which is a tiny little clump of islands, an archipelago in the vicinity of an archipelago in the vicinity of the archipelago of the British Isles, it's so small. Um, it's it's part of the Channel Islands, and. If there's a single place within the entirety of the the hundred places that are the love letter to the British Isles, it's this one. This little speck moves me, affects me in such a way that it's the distillation of everything that the British Isles means to me. You know, they're all different. All of the letters, all of the places, all of the locations, all of the stories are equally important to me. But this one, all on its own, says everything I need to say about why I love this homeland of ours. What I'm trying to say is that there are there are places for each of us that matter in ways that are extremely hard to express. I'm sure everyone listening has a place that, you know, in, I don't know, in times of need or, or for all sorts of reasons, they wish they could just press a button and be there. You know, if you had a kind of a, a, a you know, a matter transporter like Star Trek, you know, I'm sure everyone has a location in mind that when they feel they just need to get away, give me five minutes to think or, or give me a week away from the world. You know, everyone's got a place maybe remembered from childhood or, or somewhere that they visited with a loved one or a, or a partner and it means a great deal and you just want to go there at times and there's magic in them and for all of us I think you, you never really manage to collect all that many of such places and maybe there's only one and you know I've described them as being as as elusive as, as a dropping tide they slip away from us. They're hard to find and hard to hold. Well, about about five or six miles northeast of Jersey lies Les Ecrehu. And it's such a speck of land. When the tide is up, at high tide, it's just three tiny islands. You might as well describe them as large rocks because that's all that's really visible. And perched on them like seabirds drying their wings are some brightly painted buildings. You might even describe them as shacks, really. They're such basic 
structures. And to come upon them while at sea is nothing less than magical. It looks like the sort of destination that would be imagined by a Robert Louis Stevenson or a J.M. Barry. You know, if you were going to go looking for the lost boys on their island, you know, that was also populated by pirates and all the rest of it, it could be somewhere like Les Ecrahu. It You just can't believe it's real. It's like a mirage, and then you realise, no, actually, those are those are little houses on that rock <laughs> over there. Surely that's Toy Town. That, that, that can't be big enough for people. But then when you drift closer, you realise that it is big enough. Les Ecrahu is a, is a strange name, I suppose, because of proximity of France and the semi-Frenchness of the Channel Islands themselves. You might think that the name is French, but it's not really... Ekrahu comes in that way of words that change over generations from two old Norse words. Vikings, Vikings yet again. I mean, how often have we stumbled across Vikings? Scare means a reef. And home, H-O-L-M, means island. So the Vikings were describing them as, as a cross between an island and just a reef of rocks. So scare gets you the ekr bit and who has come from home over a long period of time. So Les who really means the reef that's nearly big enough to be an island. And that's really all it is. In the Channel and around the Channel Islands, the range between high tide and low tide can be as much as 40 feet. Right, so like the height of a house. And so when the tide is up, there's just the, the tops of the reef visible. And it's on these patches. And at high tide, you're literally dealing with areas of dry land that are above the sea. It's just a few tens of square yards on each side. They're absolutely tiny. But having said that, there have actually been permanent residents on Les Ecrahu. There's no water. There's no nothing. I mean, to live there, you've got to be supplied. You know, people have got to bring you food, bring you water, or you've got to go and get it yourself. But people have, have stayed there permanently. At one time, there was a Jersey-born fisherman called Philippe Pinel, and he built a little cottage come shack on the smallest of the little islets. It's called La Blanche. And he called himself King. <laughs> <laughs> well, you would, wouldn't you? You would. You know, why not? And I suppose he might as well have been. And he was there for 50 years. He made a life there coming and going for 50 years. I mean, he wasn't there all the time, but he came and went. And legend has it, his story, his existence, his presence on La Blanche, on Les Ecrahu, came to the attention of Queen Victoria. And according to the best version of the legend, she came and visited him. And there was an exchange of gifts between the two monarchs between the King of La Blanche and Queen Victoria, Empress of India. <laughs> and apparently he gave her a seaweed basket that he had woven himself, filled with fresh fish. And she gave him a coat of blue, a blue coat. Other versions of the story have it that she just sent him the coat and he just sent her the fish. But for the sake of it, and because it sits so well with my affection for the place, I prefer to imagine that, that she came out in a lovely royal yacht and then was rowed across to La Blanche. And then maybe they, maybe they spent some time together, the king and the queen, and had a conversation and an exchange of gifts. But that adds to the magic for me. 
how were the islands being used in the 17th century? Amongst other things, Les Ecrehu were used by smugglers as a kind of a safe place in neutral ground, a kind of a no-man's land. And what would happen, smugglers would get to Les Ecrehu with stuff. Let's imagine brandy or tobacco or silk or whatever. And they would light bonfires. And people on Jersey or people on the French mainland could see. They could see the fires on Les Ecrehu. And they would come out and, and, you know, and there would be an exchange. You know, they would come and get contraband and there'd be an exchange of money and goods and, and all the rest of it. So yes, they're in the line of sight. If you go now, you'll see it's quite a cluster of little buildings. It's comical. I mean, they, they look like they've been... I mean, it's higgledy-piggledy doesn't begin to describe it. They're perched on the rocks, and you can't imagine how they survive. You know, you'd think that the waves would come or the storms would come, but they don't. And they're now all owned. They're holiday homes for a handful of very, very lucky families. You can imagine that these things have just stayed in families because you would never let them go. So what happens now is the people who own them, you know, say in the school holidays... The mum and dad and the kids will get aboard a wee boat or a wee yacht. Because nothing goes there. You have to get there by yourself. There's no ferry or anything. So they go out and the dad would traditionally drop off mum and the kids, maybe stay for a couple of nights, and he'd go back to his work. And he would come and go. And every time the dads came and went, they would bring fresh water and supplies and whatever. And the families would just stay out on Les Ecrehoof. But as I say, there's, there is no, there's no fresh water. All your, everything that you're going to have on Lesecre, who you take with you, because you could fish from the rocks and, and you can collect. Because what happens at, at Lesecre, who I mentioned the tidal range of maybe as much as 40 feet, when the tide drops, what is then suddenly exposed, and it is pretty sudden, is an expanse of white sand and rock about a third of a mile wide. So it transforms from these rocks into your own private desert island. We sailed out in a yacht and then I was put into a kayak. You know those little sort of seagoing canoes? And we kayaked the last couple of miles to Les Ecrehu. And as I say, you see them emerge, ethereal, like a mirage. And then as you draw close, you realise, goodness me, these are full size and these are houses. And you come ashore onto the rocks and you say your hellos to the people that are there and then the tide drops and suddenly what had been just isolated rocks with water in between are united by this bridge of sand and other rocks. It's so magical it almost makes you want to burst into tears. It's so perfect. I I happened to be there on a perfect day, blue sky, quite calm, And so when the sea dropped, it was just heaven on earth. And you you walk out onto onto the sand and of course, whatever little sea creatures, crabs and whatever were in the vicinity are suddenly and inadvertently caught. So when you go out onto the sand, there's little crabs and other creatures going crazy, trying to hide because the sea's suddenly gone a few minutes before they were on the bottom of the English Channel and now they're in the sunlight so there's all these wee crabs and things burrowing down into the sand you know, trying to get away or you go over to a rock pool and there'll be like cuttlefish little squids there and as you lean over them they, they let go with the ink and the little rock pool will turn black because these little creatures are trying to hide 
It's just the most ethereally lovely dreamlike place. It's like waking up inside a dream. It's like the reverse of waking up. Rather than waking up to real life, it's like waking up inside the location for a dream. It's so inexpressibly perfect. When I was there, we saw lobster. <laughs> there were lobsters running about <laughs> and digging in and trying to find cover. So extraordinary. And the French mainland's only eight miles away. Uh, and yet, having said that, like the rest of the Channel Islands, they're not owned by France. They're not really owned by the United Kingdom either. You know, we've discussed this before in, in, in the context of Alderney. Remember when we talked about Alderney, when the Channel Islands were taken by the Nazis during World War II and Alderney became the location for prison camps, work camps, for slaves, Jews and gypsies and communists and others deemed undesirable by the, by the Nazi Reich were holed up on Alderney and worked to death building the defences for the Channel Islands, the massive reinforced concrete and barbed wire structures that are all over the place. And so Les Ecrehu, like the rest of the Channel Islands, are a constitutional anomaly. And for what it's worth, Les Ecrehu falls under the bailiwick of Jersey because there's two bailiwicks. There's the governance from Guernsey and there's governance from Jersey. Those are the two bigger islands and they each kind of share a half of the entirety of the Channel Islands. So Les Ecrehu is governed <laughs> in as much as you would govern the place from Jersey. I think it's part of the magic is the fact that the whole of the Channel Islands exist in this strange limbo. You know, they're not French, they're not they're not really British. They are British, but they feel they're just the Channel Islands. In that same way that when you go to Orkney and Orkney and Shetland are British, you know, constitutionally connected to the Scottish mainland, but but Shetland is just Shetland and Orkney is just Orkney. They're not like anywhere else. They have a unique character, tiny though they are. And the same thing applies in the Channel Islands. They're just different. They're this hangover, this leftover from the Duchy of Normandy. You know, the Duchy of Normandy, which was a territory that was initially ceded to Vikings. Uh, King Rollo, who was a Viking, had made so much trouble for the then King of France that the King of France, Charles the Simple, gave him a great swathe of territory. And it became Normandy, the territory of the North Men, literally, on condition that as well as doing whatever they wanted to do in Normandy, they would act as a bulwark between France and other Vikings. And so the Normans became a, a group apart. They became French, but they also had a, an obligation to protect France from their own Scandinavian brothers and sisters. And when in 1066, William the Bastard of Normandy conquered England, William the Conqueror he became. And so his Duchy of Normandy conquered England. And the two territories, England and Normandy, were one kingdom. But then over the centuries, France reclaimed Normandy, but they didn't reclaim the Channel Islands. And, you know, there's been, there's been back and forth, back and forth ever since. You know, from time to time down through the intervening centuries, France has felt that it really ought to have the Channel Islands. A bit like the way Argentina feels that it really should have the Falkland Islands. It's kind of understandable, but it never actually happens. Having said that, in 1994, there was an attempt by a bunch of <laughs> French radicals to reclaim Les Ecrehu. They landed their boats and they were going to restore the Norman French monarchy. Uh, you know, never mind the Republic, they were going to uh, restore the Norman monarchy. 
They were really just eccentrics. Police came from Jersey, because obviously it was one of the few instances when you know police had to actually come and do anything on Les Ecrahu. And they, they turned up. There was a bit of there was a bit of argy bargy. Those Frenchmen wanted to raise a flagpole on Maitre Ile, which is the largest of the islands. Uh, and then it all settled quite peacefully. In fact, it was it was eventually settled over a picnic. <laughs> I, I, I believe I believe both sides had brought food, <laughs> and and the whole thing was was settled quite peaceably, and I don't think anybody ended up being arrested. I mean, for all that it made such an impression on me, I've only been there once, and I would suggest that if you're going to go there, you know, set sail from Jersey on a, in a yacht, and then when the radar tells you that you're uh, close enough, paddle towards Les Ecrahu on a on a kayak. There's a lovely experience being in a kayak because you become suddenly like a seabird, you rise and fall on the waves. And so you rise up and you can see Les Ecrahu and then you f- you drop back down again and it disappears because you're down in a well. And then you rise up and you see Les Ecrahu and then gradually you approach. The place that you would make for, the larger isle is Maitreil and then there's La Blanche, which is the smallest, and then there's uh, Marmotier, which is the sort of middle-sized one. You know, if you're kind of dealing with Goldilocks's porridge, you know, the one's too small, <laughs> but Marmotier is, is like just right. And on Marmotier, believe it or believe it not, there's a customs house. There's a stone-built building. And it was, at one point, it did serve as the customs house because the tax men get everywhere. Um, and there's, outside of it, there's a little paved courtyard. You know, there's been a bit of subsidence or, or whatever, and it's all kind of higgledy-piggledy, but there's flagstones. Um, it's about, what size is it? It's about half the size. It's like a quarter of a badminton court, I would say, is about the size of, the, of this little paved square. And it's called Royal Square. <laughs> People come out in yachts and and beg to spend the night, and they're allowed to spend the night. And like Royal Square is the kind of patch that you might unroll your sleeping bag and spend your night under a starry sky. Just, I mean, it's just the most perfect place. And so that's why it says something to me about the wonder of the British Isles. Everything about it, it reminds you about so many things that the British archipelago is small. In the scheme of things, it's small. And you're made to confront that when you're on something that's as tiny as, as Les Ecrahu. And it's vulnerable, you know, and you're, you're, you're made to see that by the way so much of it disappears twice a day when the tide comes in. Twice a day, that beautiful landscape is gone as a reminder of the way in which this whole place could be lost. A million years from now, who knows what, if anything, will be here. And it's been an object of desire for others. Other people want Les Ecrahu. French people want Les Ecrahu. Anybody who goes to Les Ecrahu wants Les Ecrahu. If you go there and visit what you want with all your heart while you're there is for someone to give you one of the little houses so that you could come back. So it exerts that pull, once seen, never forgotten. While you're there, you'd give your heart and soul to belong to Les Ecrahu. And when you're on Les Ecrahu, the rest of the world disappears. When the tide drops and you're walking across that sand that minutes or an hour ago was the bottom of the English Channel, the next thing you confront is the idea that you're not here for long. 
You know, none of us are here for long. Three score and ten if we're lucky. Our lifetimes are short. And so you're made to think about that when you're on Les Egrehu because however perfect it is there, with the sun shining and the diamonds glinting on the surrounding sea, you absolutely know that in six hours or so, it'll be gone. And you'll have to get back in your boat or you'll have to climb up onto the top of the highest rocks and take shelter until the tide drops again. So it's everything about the experience of loving the British archipelago in miniature. And it all happens two times a day. Twice a day, you're confronted with the beauty of the place. And twice a day, you're made to confront the reality that you won't always be here. And sooner or later, it'll be gone. And you get all that in Les Egrehu. And then the time comes eventually when you just have to get back in your kayak and paddle back towards your yacht and say goodbye to Les Egrehu. When were you there last? It must be 15 years or more ago now, and I can see it clearly. I can absolutely, with my eyes open now while I'm talking to you, I can see and smell and remember Les Eckerhout. Do islands tap into a part of your personal psyche? There is a part of me that always wants to run away, escape. And islands have always sort of called out to me, which is strange really because I've spent enough time on all sorts of islands all over the world for all sorts of different reasons. To know that in truth I couldn't live on an island, not full time. I couldn't really do it, but nonetheless the dream, the fantasy persists. And at all sorts of times, under stress or feeling low or when everything else is getting on top of me, I think about packing up Trudy and the kids and the dogs and going to live on an island. It's just a recurrent fantasy. You know, there's that, um, is it Paul Brady, the song? The island. I want to take you to the island and trace your footprints in the sand. It's just my idea of escape. Maybe some people want to do other things. I mean, maybe some people want to climb a mountain, or maybe some people want to go to the desert, or maybe some people want to be lost in a forest. But when everything is getting on top of me, I want to go to an island so that no one can get at me. It's the absolute archetype epitome of an island, for me. Other people would say something different, but it's because it's temporary. There's something similar on Lindisfarne, actually, the Holy Isle off the Northumberland coast of England, because it's connected to the mainland by a causeway. So you you can drive or walk and get dry shod onto Lindisfarne from the mainland, but then the tide comes in. And so for that brief period, each twice each day, you're cut off. It's not consistently one thing. It's always about to become the other thing. And there's an even more intense version of that on Les Ecrahout. Because for half the time, it's just rocks. And the houses, you think, how do they even stay dry? You know, they look as if they should be full of water. Then the tide drops and, and the land comes back. And so it makes you think about places like Leoness and Arthurian legend and places that are so precious that you only get to be there for a very brief period and then you have to leave. Brigadoon, lost places, secret places, 
that are so precious that your hold on them is only ever temporary. It teaches you a lot about life. It makes you think, I better enjoy this while I'm here because the tide's coming in. And if that isn't a metaphor for life and death, I don't know what is. Ancient rivers pushed underground as London grows, running beneath the city, heading to join Old Father Thames. The fleet is, or was, the largest of these rivers, giving its name to the street above, which became a byword for the British press. The foundations of a tradition were laid and a torrent of words started to flow down Fleet Street. As the penny press's popularity skyrocketed, a national obsession was born, a public hungry for news. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account as well. It's called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book, It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF podcast production.